Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So we are going to have part two of our lesson on the four horsemen of sin's curse, often more commonly called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The reason I call them the four horsemen of sin's curse is because every single one of the attributes of these horsemen ties back to the fall. And I think that Revelation and Genesis answer each other. I think they're corresponding. So we're going to talk a good deal about Genesis and the fall today. Last Sunday, we had a little bit of review time. We didn't have everybody here. We didn't have Scott, who is our expert tech guy. And so we didn't have the opportunity to record. We just kind of hit some highlights and had some good discussion. But this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off. And for the sake of those who weren't here in person last Sunday, I do want to touch on very, very briefly a couple things that we pointed out. Uh, one of the things that I pointed out is that the first horseman of sin's curse is the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is the fulfillment, the final fulfillment or manifestation, if you will, of pride, man's pride. And we see in the book of Genesis, Nimrod as the head of a one world government, instituting a one world religion. and so. The Antichrist corresponds to Nimrod. Again, a lot of this stuff in Revelation ties back to Genesis. And so since the first horseman likely represents the Antichrist, this means that the seals have to take place after the rapture. If you say that the first seal is the Antichrist, which it most likely is, and you put the seals before the rapture, then we have a contradiction on our hands because the Bible tells us that the Antichrist won't be revealed until the catching up of the church. And so if you look at 2 Thessalonians 2, we have evidence of that. So when the church is removed, when the Holy Spirit you know, evacuates the earth with the body of believers in the church age, that's when the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin will be revealed. So that, again, gives us good reason to believe that the seals we're reading about are post-rapture. So that's one thing I wanted to point out. Another thing is that the seals, many people try to downplay their significance and say that they are the wrath of man and not the wrath of God. And so they'll say, we see the Antichrist, we see war, we see the, the abuse of power among human beings, but this is not God's wrath. Well, that's not accurate because the person who's opening all these seals is God. And so while he's using human beings on earth to accomplish his judgments, the sealed judgments are just as much God's judgment as the trumpets and the bowls are. So that's a common belief today that we'll be here for the seals because the seals don't represent God's wrath, but that's not accurate. They are just as much a part of God's wrath, and so we shouldn't expect to see them if the pre-trib rapture view is correct. Uh, we will be exempt from those just as much as the others. Uh, the next thing I wanted to briefly go over is Apollo seems to be represented in the description of the first horseman. And we talked about last Sunday how he embodies beauty, destruction. He's associated with light, music, and prophecy. And all of these things give us a very uh, pagan feel to that first seal that Nimrod, he is basically the son of Satan in type. And he is being influenced just as Paulo is considered this god of prophecy. Nimrod was inspired by the devil right after the flood at the Tower of Babel. And whenever the world comes together again, whenever new Babylon arises, and I think we're seeing it coming together in our own lifetime, but 
whenever new Babylon comes back, there's going to be another Nimrod figure and he is going to be this Apollo figure. Again, he's going to be seen as, you know, a bringer of light and beauty and inspiration for uh, a great utopia. And so we see mankind setting himself up as basically God. Secular humanism is the technical way of referring to it, but uh, the Antichrist conquers politically. He also conquers religiously. And again, that association with Apollo seems to suggest that we'll see a rise in supernatural deception. We're already seeing it today. The spirit of the Antichrist was at work in John's day and uh, behind all the cults that John was combating. I think that those same pagan cults will be very influential in the end times. And so we see all of these insights in the first horseman, the first seal. But today uh, we're going to move on now and we're going to talk about the second seal. So in verse three of Revelation six, it says, when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth that they should kill one another. And there was given him a great sword. So this red horse clearly represents war. No one really disputes that. Uh, when this seal is opened up, peace is taken away. And immediately we have conflict on earth and conflict of a global scale. People wonder, since we've had war since the very beginning of human history, what makes this unique? Well, it's all mankind together. I mean, going back again to the Tower of Babel, the reason the Tower of Babel was so unique is because everybody was there. And so here in Revelation, when we're thinking about these seals, we have to think in terms of a, a global scale. And so there's going to be world war. We've already seen world war before happen, but it's going to be even more connected. I, I think that the world is more connected now than it even was back in World War I, back in World War II. And so this world war will definitely live up to that description, world war. Um, another thing to point out about this is at this point in the timeline, the Antichrist is not the leader of the world. Okay, he is conquering just as the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was at Babel and he went on to conquer more. We also see the beginning of the Antichrist empire here. So he is going to come out of the revived Roman empire. Uh, he is the little horn described in Daniel seven, eight. He is going to pluck up three horns in his path to power. So at first, no doubt he will work with these 10. Uh, he will be seen as a subordinate, uh, a representative, uh, representing the interest of a power, but he will eventually become the power. But in his rise to power, Certainly diplomacy will be utilized expertly by him to gain control, but eventually diplomacy will only take him so far and war will be required for him to take over. And this revived Roman empire is going to spread across the globe. And so a very strong Europe is something that we see coming out of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, you know, coming together, joining hands that, you know, that vision of a united Europe is uh, fresh in people's minds because of that. And so we're going to see Europe become much stronger as uh, the years move on. And uh, we're going to see that final revived Roman Empire emerge at the start of the tribulation. And so this is a time period where we're not really going to see the mark of the beast, at least the first half of the tribulation. Again, the Antichrist is consolidating power. He's setting the stage for his final revelation, which won't be till halfway through the seven years of the tribulation. And that's when he will force people to take the mark. 
again, I, I don't deny that technology is setting the stage for that mark, but it won't actually be forced upon people until halfway through the tribulation. And that's when he will be recognized not as simply the ruler of the revived Roman Empire, but he will be the ruler of the world at that point. Um, so this war that's taking place is no doubt people pushing back against the Antichrist, uh, people perhaps who worked with him initially, again, those three horns that he plucks up. Uh, it could be that uh, there are many other nations that push back against the Antichrist simply because they don't want to be ruled over by somebody else. I mean, this is just, you know, classic warfare. People don't want to be conquered. And so when the Antichrist starts to spread out of Europe, there's going to be a lot of pushback there. But let's talk about war in general some, because I think that it can be easy to get caught up in the details of how each of these seals will be fulfilled and miss the big picture. So the big picture is war is part of God's curse on creation. And so creation is cursed because of man's sin. Uh, it is a natural at best war is, and it's murderous at worst. I think about war and I'm going through the, the book of judges right now. And I just recently I think I talked about it on Wednesday night. I've been reading about uh, Deborah and Barak and Jael, and it's a very violent story. You know, mm -hmm. the judges is a, is a violent book. Mm -hmm. And so when you read that book, you have mixed emotions, I think as a Christian. Okay. The first emotion as a guy is like, yeah, God conquers praise the Lord. You know, that's the emotion that I get. It's very epic. Uh, I love those stories because it highlights God's power and his glory and his triumph over sin. But at the same time, there's, there's also, you know, grief mixed in there. Mm -hmm. I see that war and I think, man, why does, why does this have to happen? Yeah. Well, it's because the world is broken by sin. And I, I, the other day was in school and I don't know how the topic got brought up, but I heard some students talking about war with Russia. Okay. So they yeah. talked about like, what if, the U.S. actually goes to war with Russia. And, of course, you have the young guys who are like, well, if it came to war, I'd be there. I'd sign up, you know. And it's just that braggadocious yep. spirit, you know. And I'm like, I can remember there was a time where I had that same attitude about it. But now <coughs> I see war for what it is. It's sickening. It's hell. It's hell, right. It's hell on earth. And so whenever we think of war, yes, Ironically, war, like in the book of Judges, can bring out for certain individuals and nations like Israel, righteousness and bravery, and we can commend those things. But at the same time, we should always be reluctant when it comes to war. We should always be reluctant when it comes to violence, even on an individual level. I think about self-defense. This is a topic that I mentioned to some students earlier this week, and I said self-defense is something that the Bible does teach. Um, we have a right to defend those who can't defend themselves. We have a right to defend ourselves. But I said, we should never be eager to do harm to anybody. And violence is being idolized by our culture. It's been idolized by many cultures since the beginning of time, but especially in video games. Um, I think that that is one of the clearest examples of it. And so we should always be reluctant when it comes to pursuing war. If you hear Jasher in the background, I think he just hurt his mouth. So whisper a prayer for Jasher. Poor baby. But uh, we should always be shocked by war. We should never get used to it. But in the midst of it all, guys, this is what I want to remind ourselves, remind myself of this, because I think that whenever Russia first invaded Ukraine, I was very depressed. I really was. You know, that happening just, it shocked me. It shocked a lot of people. And 
it made me it made me get kind of dark in my outlook. I was just thinking, all right, Jesus, come on back because, you know, it seems to be getting pretty bad. It seems to get pretty scary out there. But uh, I think that that honestly took my mind off things that uh, my mind should be on, like the hope that I have in Christ. And so I need to remind myself daily that God will have men one day beat their swords into plowshares, as it says in Isaiah 2, 4. But until then, God uses the raging of the nations to accomplish his purposes. I think back to the book of Habakkuk. I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with the story of Habakkuk. It's one of my favorite stories. Uh, it's this interaction between the prophet and God. And I just love exchanges like that in the Bible, conversations between God and somebody else. And Habakkuk saw a lot of injustice happening in his own country. And he said, God, what are you going to do about this? Why are you letting these Jewish people, these people who are Jewish ethnically, but they don't believe in you, they're, they're butchering people, they're stealing, they're worshiping false gods, like all this stuff. And God said, don't worry about it, Habakkuk. I'm going to send in the Babylonians. And they're going to judge my people. I'm going to take care of it. Don't worry about it. And then Habakkuk responds as, God, wait a second. That's not what I had. Like the Babylonians are worse than the Jewish people. As sinful as they are, the Babylonians are worse. And they're conquering everybody, right? They're the bully in the Middle East. Like they're taking over everybody else. So surely you're not going to do something like that. Use them because they're sinful. And then God responds to Habakkuk and says, don't worry. I'm going to punish the Babylonians too. So, so God doesn't really answer any of the why questions that Habakkuk voices. It's just the what. What is going to happen? I'm giving yeah. you hope. I'm giving you a promise. I'm going to judge my people. Don't worry about it. I'm going to judge the Babylonians. They're going to have their due as well. Yeah. And he sets that in the context of the end time. So, you know, Babylon will, will eventually fall. The new Babylon, the revived Babylon that we're talking about here, that's going to come out of this war with the Antichrist at the head of it. Uh, God's going to use it to accomplish his purposes. You know, there's going to be a lot of death as we'll read further in the text but god is using the nations he's using war to bring judgment upon people who have not yet believed in him and he's hoping of course that it will turn them back you know war is one of those things that should get our attention you know kind of shock us out of our distractions we love the world we love what the world offers war reminds us that all's not as my mom would say hunky dory you know there, there's a problem around us, and, and war is meant to get our attention, and that's what God uses it for. And, of course, he uses it, as we see in Habakkuk, to punish evildoers. But eventually, as it says in Revelation 19, evil is eventually going to destroy itself. So the pride of man with Antichrist spearheading that, it's going to come back upon itself. So we need to be concerned about our own type of warfare, and our warfare is described in Ephesians 6.12. And so while it's hard for us to balance, you know, Warfare in a literal sense, you know, like America and how we play into things on a world scale, balance that with our spiritual warfare as Christians. It's a really hard thing to do, I think, because for a Christian, we're thinking, well, our warfare really doesn't have to do with swords and shields. It doesn't have to do with guns and grenades. It has to do with, you know, the Holy Spirit and prayer and sharing the gospel. Like these are the things that we should be engaging in. But at the same time, the Bible does teach per the Noahic covenant that nations are given authority. They are given governments and those governments have the right to defend their interests and, and maintain their borders and, and things such as that. So it's hard for us to find that balance, but I, I feel like a lot of people, they go overboard in both directions, really. I mean, you have some people that 
They go so overboard when it comes to emphasizing the spiritual nature of our warfare that they don't think anything in terms of really social injustice. They're like, okay, well, our kingdom is not of this world. Right. Let's not really bother with that. God will sort that out in the end. And there's truth to that, obviously. Then you have people on the other end who they are so emphatic about keeping our borders safe and so emphatic about uh, you know America being free, which of course we want those things. They're so emphatic about that that they forget that this world is not their permanent home, right? So it's really tough for us. That's one of our struggles as Christians, I think, especially American Christians, because we have a lot of patriotism. It runs in our blood. So finding that balance between, yes, we are, we are right in you know, wanting to defend ourselves and pursue justice in, as a society, but at the same time, we shouldn't get caught up so much into that that we forget about evangelism. We forget about winning people to the Lord because we will never be able to create a utopia. As, as great as America has been in the past, as great as potentially it could be, I don't think it's going to live up to that potential, but uh, it's never going to be the perfect kingdom that Christ promises us. So in the meantime, the horror of war, um, it can lead us easily into one of two things. It can lead us into wrath. I get wrathful you know, when I see injustice, and I know y'all do too. But it also leads us to grief, and that's especially what I was dealing with whenever Russia invaded Ukraine. Obviously, I was angry about it, but at the same time, I was I was grieved in my heart so much that I felt hopeless. Even though in the back of my mind, I knew that I had that hope, that hope wasn't at the forefront. It wasn't something that was bringing me real peace in my life. And so how do we overcome that? Well, um, to overcome the grief, we have to be mindful of the fact that this is everything that God has already prophesied, like everything that's happening. God already planned it out. Now, when I say God already planned it out, I'm not saying God planned people's decisions, but God knew everybody's decisions and he uses those decisions in his plan. So even the most horrific war, God can accomplish something through that. And we may not see it immediately, but uh, we ultimately know that God uses it in the present and eventually he'll abolish it entirely. And then of course, uh, the other thing that we should do whenever we get wrathful about the injustice around us is to remind ourselves that God is actually withholding his wrath right now. He's withholding it. In 2 Peter 3, 9, when it says, uh, God is patient to us. He's patient toward us. What does it mean when Peter says us? For the longest time, I assumed it just referred to the human race, but he is talking to believers. He says he's patient toward us. God is saying that I've got something for you to do, and I'm being patient with you. Obviously, he's being patient with people who have not yet repented. He wants them to repent. But he's patient with us because it is our job to reach out to these people. That's our warfare. That's our, that's our goal. And so I think that we should have mixed emotions when it comes to the rapture. I think that we should fill our minds with the hope of our, our blessed Savior Jesus Christ coming down from the sky and taking us home. We should constantly have that hope renewed in our minds on a daily basis. But at the same time, do we have that longing without fear for other people? I think that it would be wrong for us to have the longing and to highlight that so much that we don't feel a little iffy about Jesus coming back because there's something for us to do. Um, obviously, he's going to take that out of our hands. He's going to come back when it's his timing, and we'll know that God's not mistaken about it. But, you know, right now he's given us time, and we should, you know, redeem the day. Uh, I forget the name of the fellow, but he, he came to Mount Zion years ago. And he, he was a half Japanese, uh, half American fellow um, who is going to Japan and he's a missionary there. And he said, how many of y'all want the rapture to happen today? And everybody in the congregation was like, yes, yes, yes. And he said, really, are you sure? 
And they were like, yes. He's like, well, I don't want it to happen today. And it shocked everybody. And he said, I don't want it to happen today because there are lots of people that don't know about Jesus. And I want them to know. And I was like, you know what? I, I, I can get behind that. I can understand that. Now, again, we shouldn't feel bad about hoping for Jesus coming back because he tells us to hope in it. It is called our blessed hope for a reason. But again, there ought to be a balance there. And that balance in the Christian life is very hard to maintain. All right. The next thing we want to talk about is the black horse. So look at verse five. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. So first let's talk about that. And then we'll talk about the big picture. So some details here, clearly this is referring to famine. Uh, the, the scales and balances indicate that uh, the difficulty of getting food in verse five, it gives us clear cut answer uh, in verse six that we're dealing with famine. But when it says a measure of wheat for a penny, what's a measure of wheat? Well, ancient sources indicate that a measure of wheat was basically like uh, a portion, which is a portion for a one meal, right? Just one meal. And so this is a person who has one portion for their day. Okay, so it would just be one individual's portion for the day. And the penny right here refers to a day's wage. So if you have a family... Uh, so if you're the head of the house and you got a wife and then you have multiple kids, you work all day and you're only able to get one portion for one individual. So famine is clearly going to get worse throughout the tribulation, but we see it starting even at the very beginning. And how is this famine explained? Well, there are two ways to explain it. And I think they're both correct. I think they both take place at the same time. The first thing is warfare generally brings famine with it. Yes. Scarcity of resources. And if it's world war, there's going to be scarcity of food worldwide. However, on top of that, what makes it even worse, what makes it unique to this seal in this time period is since the seals start in the first half of the tribulation, the first quarter, and the two witnesses that are talked about in chapter 11, they begin preaching as soon as the tribulation starts. While this famine's taking place, they're preaching. Well, it says that they shut up the heavens to where it does not rain for three and a half years of their testimony. So this is a worldwide drought that's being experienced uh, in conjunction with worldwide warfare. So when you add both of those factors together, you can understand how this would result in such an extreme famine. Uh, another thing, it seems to indicate that uh, since, and this, I'm not an agricultural expert, but I, I looked this up. Um, this sort of drought for three and a half years would affect wheat and barley before oil and wine uh, because of the vines of the olives and the grapes. Right. They would be able to survive uh, better in those conditions than the wheat and the barley. Because they're perennial and wheat is replanted every year. Yes. And, and so, I, again, I'm not, I'm not a farmer. I don't know a whole lot. Christy knows a whole lot more about this than I do, but... Multiple commentators were noting that uh, a lack of rain would not affect the oil and the wine as quickly. They also grow in desert regions. Yes. Exactly. So this makes sense why there would be oil and wine, but it also, I think, and again, the majority of commentators, uh, I think they're probably right in noting that oil and wine, they're commodities, they're luxuries. So this may indicate that the people who are in charge, the people who have the balances, okay, 
These are people who are able to still afford not just enough food for themselves, but they're able to also afford, afford the oil and the wine too. So this means that the famine is going to affect, as it usually does, some people more than others. And the people who are rich and the people who are in power are going to be able to not only take enough of the barley and the wheat for themselves to have food every day, and probably more than enough, but they're also on top of that going to have enough to you know afford the oil and the wine and those other luxuries. And so uh, poor people are going to experience this um, a lot more than others. And we, again, we kind of see that, don't we? I mean, even in America, our politicians, they claim to be servants of the people, but, you know, they drive their nice cars and, you know, they buy their jets and, and they go to the finest restaurants and, right. and all the while they're claiming to be servants of the people and compare that to the founding fathers who, you know, barely took, you know, an honorium, right. you know, but they had their own jobs. They supported themselves and they really were servants of the people. So that's right. I mean, uh, living like sucking the life out of the American people. And so we can see that happening already. And of course, uh, the worldwide elite who are going to be behind the Antichrist and, you know, throwing their lot in with him. Those are the people here. They have the scales. They have the balances. And and of course, they are going to do just what the politicians do today, claiming that they're the servants and claiming that they're doing everything for the best interests of the people. But all the while, they're stealing from the people. And sadly, a lot of people will believe that lie. Like there are people today who believe in the lie that these politicians are actually serving Especially them. In the third world where they're skimming off all of the aid and everything. Yes. Supposedly true. representing the people. Yeah, absolutely. And so we can see this now. It's just going to be worldwide. I mean, we see it worldwide already in the sense of you have local governments and they take advantage of the people. But we're talking about one government worldwide. And it's going to be in a time period worse than any other. So uh, just as in difficult time periods, we see that abuse highlighted, the abuse of authority. Um, we're going to see it even more so whenever the black horse, this third seal is opened and revealed. Um, and so what, what do we do uh, when it comes to um, famine in general? What do we do? Um, and actually, before I answered that question, for those who are filling out notes, um, I almost forgot. But for number two, the red horse, I just want you to know the answer. Uh, war cannot prevent God's glorious purpose, but it can distract us from ours. So war cannot prevent God's glorious purpose. Sorry to kind of go back there, but I didn't want to forget. Uh, but the black horse, the point is selfish want is heedless of God's gracious offer and solemn warning. Selfish want is heedless of God's gracious offer and solemn warning not just with power, but we see just with normal people, everyday people, entitlement is getting worse and worse. And uh, I'm shocked by it. I'm, I'm shocked that uh, the students that I teach, they don't have a shred of common courtesy a lot of times. And I, I don't, I'm like, I don't understand if I call them on it, there's no shame. That's the thing that surprises me. I can understand it happening occasionally. We have a sin nature, right? It, it comes through. Uh, but it's like whack-a-mole. It comes out, you, you know, suppress it. And you would think that it's better in the South. Yeah, you would think so. Yeah, you would think that the value is down here, but it, it's becoming so pervasive in our society, that entitlement attitude, that even when I call the students on it, they just laugh. In fact, some of them act like they take pride in it, and I don't get it. It's such a reversal to the way that human beings ought to behave, and it is getting worse, I think. Uh, and so, that again, that reminds us that famine... Uh, 
it, it gives us opportunities for those who believe in the Lord Jesus and, and we're longing for the kingdom and we're suffering now. We take the hope that we have in the midst of suffering. We take that comfort and we comfort other people. So how should we Christians do that? We should take care of people in a humanitarian manner, obviously. Right. Uh, some missions organizations sadly have gone astray over the years and they've dropped the evangelistic aspect of missions. And we can never do that. We can. Um, so we have to have both of those. But uh, the hope that we have instills in us this desire to share the gospel and to show these people a, an illustration of God's love. Just as Jesus took bread and he gave it to us and he said, this is the bread of life. He fed right. thousands, right? He fed those people. He filled their bellies, but then he shared the gospel with them. We should do the same thing um, as, as often as we can. And so that it should bring out the righteousness that we have as Christians, that new nature. Uh, that's what famine should bring out. But sadly for those who are unsaved, uh, sadly for those who live according to the flesh, it brings out depravity. It brings out wickedness. And we're going to see that more and more as we see the day approaching. But we always remind ourselves, or should at least, that one day God's going to feed his children in paradise. And I had someone on Facebook mention this to me, this verse and Hebrews 6, 5, and it talks about tasting the goodness of the kingdom to come. And he said, we can taste it now. Because we were talking about whether is the kingdom now or is it to come. And, and I was like, well, it is to come. And he kind of agreed with me on that. He's, he's premillennialist. He's like, yes, I agree that the, the physical manifestation of the kingdom with a government and Christ on the throne, that has not happened yet. He said, but God has already given us kingdom privileges now. And I couldn't disagree with him. Like, absolutely, yeah. We do have certain kingdom privileges. He said, we can taste the goodness of the coming kingdom, as it says in Hebrews 6. And so we should be taking advantage of that every day. You know, we talk about uh, physical famine. It makes me think of the spiritual famine that exists even among Christians. Uh, so many Christians are beaten down. They're burnt out. And it's because they're not feeding themselves. Uh, many cases, they're, they're not being fed by their pastors or their teachers. And so that's something that we should put um, forward as a priority in our lives. And uh, last thing that I'll mention about this, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, it talks about the helmet of hope, the helmet of hope. And I think it's interesting because we usually think of Ephesians 6, helmet of salvation. But he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, he calls it the helmet of hope. And so our hope of the coming kingdom, our hope of the rapture is what enables us to get through the day. It's what enables us to not be beaten down and not be burnt out. And so we should be sharing this with people all the time. And again, I'm not saying that, okay, we should go up to somebody and say, look, Jesus is coming back, brother, and, and neglect their needs, right? I mean, that's what James talks about. Like, God bless you. We'll pray for you, but not supplying the need. We shouldn't do that, but we should do both and make sure that we're, we're not doing what the evangelical church is doing so often. That's taking off the helmet of hope and saying, well, every generation's thought it's going to be the end. Every generation thought Jesus is coming back in their time. And he's probably not going to come back in our time. And that's the attitude that people have. So they essentially taken off their helmet of hope. They chunked it away. They're not giving that to their congregation. And so the congregations wonder why they're so beaten down and discouraged all the time. It's because their helmets have been taken off and removed. And whenever your helmet's taken off, the devil has access to your mind. He has access to your perspective daily. And of course that affects, you know, whether or not we have the joy of the Lord. And so we got to go back to that all the time. Uh, and lastly, uh, the pale horse. So number four, death is only destruction. This is the point. Death is only destruction to those who are already dead. Death is only destruction to those who are already dead. Now let's look at what 
that means in verse 7. When he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. So this describes, before I move on to the next part of the verse, this describes a horseman with a person on it, okay? The person sitting on it is Death, so you can almost imagine the Grim Reaper. And as he travels, as he slays, as he claims lives, behind him follows a beast, a monster. And whoever is slayed by death is going into the monster, going into hell. This, of course, wouldn't apply to every single individual. But since the majority of the world will follow the Antichrist, the majority of the world after the rapture will not come to faith. Sadly, most people who experience death during this time period will realize that there was a monster following death, a, a monster that they denied existed at all. It says, and power was given unto them, that is death and hell, over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, and with death, and with the beast of the earth. Now, when it says a fourth part of the earth, there are two main views that I found uh, that make sense to me. The first is that over a fourth part of the earth does not refer to a fourth part of the population dying. Uh, this view is that of Bill Solace, and he argues that a fourth part of the earth refers to Europe conquering a fourth part of the earth. And that's when the revived Roman Empire rises, but it has not consolidated all of its power yet. The Antichrist at this point would not be the ruler of the entire world, only a fourth part. This would be a sweeping flood from Europe, conquering nation after nation. And that's when Israel enters into a treaty with the Antichrist, who's representing the revived Roman Empire. And that is why Israel is safe from that scourge that comes and sweeps over the land. So that makes sense to me. I think it fits well into the end times context, but the most plain sense that, again, I'm going to say Bill Solace is a very smart guy. Uh, he could be right about it. But again, the plain sense, and there's nothing to contradict this, is that a fourth part of the earth refers to a fourth part of human population dying at this time. And uh, I think that that makes sense. So that's the one I'm going to go with. But I wanted to share with you the other view because I think that it, it has promise. And we'll find out one day. You know, we're all going to be topside. When this stuff goes down and we'll be able to see whether or not uh, these views are true, but it mentions killing with the sword. So that's referring back to war, hunger, the famine with death. Most people believe that that's a reference to pestilence because the person who rides death on this pale horse, he's riding on a horse that is greenish in its hue. Uh, the word in Greek is chloros and it refers to not just pale, but like a pale with a greenish tint. It refers to like someone who's sick. Yes, uh, sort of. Yeah, it's it's a pale green. Uh, and in Greek writing, sometimes it just means pale. It doesn't necessarily mean green, but it is consistently used to represent uh, sickness in, in human beings. You know, they got that greenish tint to them. And so that's probably what's being hinted at here. You know, a pale green. And so death there in verse eight is probably a reference to pestilence worldwide pestilence. And of course we see that happening already in our time. Guys, if you're listening and you don't think that we're close to the end times, I want you to consider that we, for the first time in human history, we are able to have pandemics. Okay. There was a time where we were not able to have pandemics because people didn't travel outside of their isolated region. And uh, so usually diseases. Yeah. Yeah. What, that's what I mean. When I, Epidemic. Yes. Let, let me let me define terms. Pandemic, I mean the world experiences this disease. Uh, we see how quickly COVID spread. 
And so that reminds us that today, because we're so interconnected as a human race, that pestilence can, I mean, imagine if it would have been something like Ebola. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's the sort of stuff that we're seeing here in the tribulation. We're, we're not talking about uh, the flu. Right. Uh, we're talking about something that is going to wipe out, along with warfare and hunger, a fourth part of the human population. However, however many that is, I don't know. But since we know it is a narrow way that leads to life when the rapture happens, again, the majority of the human population will remain after the rapture happens. And so for a fourth part of that population to be killed by all these various factors, it's, it's horrific to even imagine. Uh, but, and lastly, beast of the earth, that one really harkens back to the fall. There was a time where there was no enmity between humans and animals, and it wasn't even really until after the flood, then animals begin to fear mankind. Now, that doesn't mean that animals weren't already becoming carnivorous before the flood. They were. It says violence filled the earth. It speaks of human violence and animal violence, beast as well. But before the flood, imagine guys living in that time and animals, violent animals, not having any fear of human beings, which is pretty scary because we kind of take it for granted. But there are a lot of animals that could do some real damage to us, even in this area. Like think of a black bear, for example, can do real damage to people, but they have fear. Like they have fear of human beings. Uh, same thing with snakes. Snakes generally, unless they're back into a corner, they'll flee. Okay. They want to stay away from people. Okay. They want to stay from us, these big lumbering giants. But it seems like in some manner, God is undoing what he instituted during the Noahic covenant. He's removing that fear. And this means that animals all over the world are going to start attacking people. Animals that perhaps you wouldn't expect. Um, there's a show that me and Katie watched. Was it called Zoo? Was that what it was called? Uh, it was a show that we watched and it was uh, about an apocalypse. Mm. And basically what happened is all animals lost their fear of man. Was this a bad Christian movie? No, it wasn't a Christian movie at all, actually. But it was interesting because it... it like Zootopia and they were spraying no, no, no. and they were uh, on the people? No, it, it was like, <laughs> basically they described it as evolutionary change. Obviously don't believe in that nonsense. But it was a genetic, um, a genetic mutation that led to, and it was very contagious, and it led to all the animals turning on mankind. And when I watched that, I was like, these people don't realize how close they have it. Because obviously it's not going to be, you know, naturalistically explained. It is God who's doing this. But in verse eight, it says the beast of the earth, the entire earth. So you don't think this could be like they did back in the early church where they threw Christians to lions? I, that's a that's a possibility. Okay. And again, Bill Solace would probably favor that view. Again, um, that all depends on viewing death and hell as political entities. Uh, so they would say, or Bill would say, uh, death and hell are the revived Roman empire and they are conquering through the sword and they're, they're using famine to their advantage. And perhaps there's even biological warfare. Pestilence could be involved in that. Uh, what's that? Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine that. And uh, beast of the earth could be, you know, old Roman style persecution of Christians. That is not far fetched to me, honestly. The way people I mean, malign people's heads off. Yeah, the way people malign Christians today, I, I wouldn't be surprised there are beheadings and feeding them to animals. It's terrible to think about, but it wouldn't surprise me. So it I think that a quarter of the earth. Um uh, so but again, they would say that that wouldn't be the population. They would say a quarter of the earth is basically boundaries. So they would say that if you were to look at the earth um uh, in terms of nations and you know in the land, that this revived Roman Empire will have a quarter of it under its control. 
um, it will be a consolidated power in a quarter of the earth. So again, I think that that's reasonable. I think that all the text makes sense in light of that, but I'm hesitant to limit it in that way because you would have to make to me a very compelling argument that death and hell are limited to the revived Roman empire. And I, I think that war here, famine, pestilence, death and hell, these are very universal things that we've seen through all of history going back to the fall. Obviously it's going to be global in scale here, but I think that to limit it to a political entity, I think it's, it's just pushing it a little bit too far. Again, I could be wrong. I mean, that, that, that view could work, but um, as far as I'm concerned, I think the best way to look at it is the sword, hunger, pestilence, and the beast of the earth represent all these aspects of creation that are corrupt. They are corrupted from their original ideal form. Whenever God created things pristine in the Garden of Eden, there was no sword. There was no hunger. There was no disease, death, mutations, and there were no beasts of the earth killing people. So I think that we're seeing earth in its, its curse basically in its final death throes. Like it's getting, it's getting worse before it's going to get better when Jesus renews everything. And so how does this end? Well, the unsaved who live by sin and death. Again, we talked about how war can be justified in certain cases, uh, but unsaved who live, they thrive by it. They thrive by persecution and oppression and they're deceived in their unbelief. Those people will be consumed by the infernal monster that's on their heels. The monster, like I said earlier, they have denied. And that infernal monster is eternal condemnation. Uh, so the question that I have for those who are listening, I know how everybody in here would answer this question, but for those who are listening, does heaven or hell follow you? Does Jesus follow death? Okay, so what I guess I'm trying to ask is this. We all, unless the rapture happens, will die. When we meet the Grim Reaper, metaphorically speaking, who is going to be meeting us on the other side? Is it going to be Jesus uh, walking with us in the garden like we sang earlier in our hymn? Or is it going to be the infernal monster here? And so I hope that you know which one uh, applies to you because after all, you can know now, the Bible says. You can have that assurance and so in Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, death loses its sting. There's no fear for us as Christians. Now, of course, I fear the manner of my death, right? I mean, I don't want to die in a painful way. And I don't want to leave my, my greatest fear really isn't even that. My greatest fear is leaving my family. Because I got a wife and four kids. And I can imagine how hard that would be leaving behind my family. Um, and so that's my greatest fear. But I don't fear death itself. And that's because, like it says in Hebrews 2, those who believe in Jesus, we've been delivered from this bondage. And what is the bondage? Fear of death, mm -hmm. Hebrews 2 says. And we've been delivered from it. So if you're scared of death, uh, the fire of hell is permanently extinguished for all those who believe in Jesus. So hopefully you will do that if you're listening to this today. And uh, if you have that assurance, as many of you probably do, let us rescue those who are perishing. That's what it says in Proverbs 24, 11. Uh, while we have an opportunity to rescue people. Let us do it. I, I really, I keep going back when I think about these things. I keep going back to a guy who preached at a conference. I think it was, uh, gosh, what was it called? Super Wow. Super Wow. And it was like a youth conference in Jekyll Island. Mm -hmm. And I went there a couple times. And this guy preached and he had a book that he wrote. 
one thing that the Christian can't do in heaven or one thing a believer can't do in heaven. And uh, that one thing he said was share the gospel. He said, we can't do that in the he in heaven. We can't share the gospel with someone who needs to hear it right. because everybody who's there has already believed it. Right. And so there is going to be many ways that we can worship and praise our creator in heaven. But do you realize that we're not going to have conflict in heaven? Conflict gives us, as we've just talked about, like war. War brings out, for those who are righteous and dedicated to God, it brings out virtue. It brings out bravery. Some of the greatest stories mm. that we pass down in terms of heroes are people laying their lives down in the heat of battle for other people. Conflict, as horrible as it is, and it is a stain on creation because of the curse, mm. it gives us the opportunity to shine brighter. And this opportunity we have in history, it is coming to a close. I mean, we're getting closer and closer to the end. We're running out of opportunities to, in the midst of conflict, be bright. And so rather than conflict cowing us and you know, backing us into a corner and making us lose our hope, on the contrary, we should say, let's rise to the challenge because there are only going to be Canaanites in the land for so long, you know? So let us do the best with what we have as we have opportunity. And so that's all I've got for us this morning. And I hope that it was a blessing to you. And next week we will pick up and we'll talk about the rest of the seals. God bless.